All right. We got a new microphone that was donated to the church, so we'll see how this works. Should be clearer and maybe not as much static. I'm also going to try speaking a little bit different using the clicker instead of reading from my iPad. So in this episode of The Bald Man on the Pulpit, (laughs) I'm going to speak about prophecy a little bit more. My last sermon, I talked about um, the first prophecy that's in the Gospel uh, in Genesis 3.15, and uh, I thought that it would be a good time to work on another piece of prophecy that's very foundational to a lot of the other prophecies. Um, One of the things that I started thinking about while I was preparing this sermon was why I had this infatuation with prophecy recently, you know, when I was able to study the Bible like I've been studying, when, you know, years ago I couldn't seem to get myself to open it very much at all. You know, a lot of the gospel deals with prophecy, of course, um, but to really get granular with prophecy, we need to get into history and how history, how prophecy applied to history so that we can really understand it and understand the symbology, and then so we can understand future prophecy. Well, I know in school, I hated history. History was the most boring subject possible. But recently, you know, I've started to find this, this interest in it. And so I started thinking, why, you know, why does it, you know, why do I need to know it? Or why, why do I have this uh, newfound love, I guess, for it? And one of the verses that I found, you know, is um, Matthew twenty four twenty four for false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, the elect. So as we get closer to the end time, whether we see that in our lifetimes or not, the chance is that we will see this time. And we need to know what's going to happen because they, the, the false Christ and false prophets will deceive, if possible, the elect. And I know that I don't feel like I'm one of the elect. I feel like I have a long way to go, so that's why we need to study this. Um, we see in, in um, Revelation 12.9, uh, the Satan's going to deceive the whole world. Revelation 13, uh, the Antichrist is going to deceive the, the earth. Over and over, especially in Revelation, we see these warnings about this deception that's going to happen in the end time. And I think that it's possible that there are going to be some well-intentioned Christians that, that believe in Jesus Christ that are going to be led astray because that is what the Antichrist is, right? We have the Antichrist is not the opposite of Christ. Well, I mean, technically it is, but he's going to, he's, that, that uh, entity is going to seem Christ-like, and that's where the trickery is going to happen. So another verse that I, I found that had uh, started to help me understand you know, why I felt so attached to some of these things was Second Thess- Thessalonians 2, 9 and 10. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all the power, signs, and lying wonders and with all righteous de- de- deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And this is where... To me, it starts helping me understand where that, that passion is kind of understand, coming from, right? To really feel this desire to study the Bible, that we need to receive this love of the truth so that we can all be saved, so that we're not deceived. Um, when, when, we, 
when we want this, this love of truth and the truth itself, both can be provided by God. All we need to do is ask for it. The verse continues on saying, and for this reason God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie that they may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So of course this is also part of the thing that we need to believe the truth and not have pleasure in unrighteousness. It seems kind of strange when it says that for this reason God will send them strong delusion. Why is God going to send people a lie? You know, And this is even the New Testament, which is supposed to be a little more cheery and, and God's you know good. But it only seems strange if we take it out of context. If we actually put it into the context of the Bible and the character of God, then we understand that in the end times, when those of us that are sealed uh, mind and heart to righteousness and to God, we're sealed with the Holy Spirit, everyone else the Spirit will be withdrawn from. And in this case, God is saying that He's taking responsibility. It's their own delusions. It's their own lies that they're believing, their own pleasure and unrighteousness that they're believing. But God has taken responsibility. I'm pulling that back. So it's my fault that strong delusion came to them. So the reason I used this particular uh, graphic for my sermon, decoding the signs, is because it hints to the mark of the beast. We know the mark of the beast is on the forehead and in the right hand. Now, if we study the Bible out, we also know that that's in reference to our thoughts and our actions. So it's very critical that we understand prophecy and we understand what we're supposed to be doing and we understand this cleansing process that uh, God's supposed to be working on each of us so that way we have the correct thoughts and we have the correct actions. There's my reminder. So bow, with, bow your heads with me and pray. <clears throat> Dear Heavenly Father, I come before the congregation with a, a message to share, a message that You've shared with me. I ask that You use me as Your mouthpiece, that You uh, help me share Your Word, help me to inspire a love of truth, a love of prophecy, in the congregation and myself, that we may nurture that love, that we can know more to become the elect so that we are not deceived by the coming lies of your enemy. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. <clears throat> so, if I was going to give this particular sermon a subtitle, I was going to call it Israel in End Time Prophecy. This is a, a foundational aspect of, of a lot of prophecies that we need to understand. Around the globe, we have millions of people that are interested in Bible prophecy. Most of them Christians, but there's a lot of people that are looking at Bible prophecy to see what happens. They, they study it out. Um, uh, most people are looking at Jerusalem, right? It's not difficult to understand why people look to Jerusalem to see what's happening or what's going on because we have a stream of legitimate news coming out of the, the area with uh, bloodshed and strife that's all between the Palestinians and Israelis. Most Christians have a firm belief of end-time prophecies that concern Israel directly. We see in, in Revelation there's a lot of terminology that is used that is straight out of uh, that area. Best-selling author David Hunt wrote this on the back of his popular book, A Cup Trembling, 
Fast-moving events in the Middle East point almost daily towards the grand finale, the time of greatest suffering for the Jewish people worldwide, which will climax in the terrifying battle of Armageddon and the glorious return of Messiah to rescue Israel and reign over the world from David's reestablished throne in Jerusalem. Now, there are some differences among a lot of mainstream Christians as far as uh, the role that Israel will play in end-time prophecy. Some people think various things, but there's five core principles that we're going to look at that most of them agree with, okay? So the first one was the rebirth of the state of Israel in 1948. That's already happened, but that was prophetic to what was supposed to happen according to most Christians. Number two, a soon coming seven years of great tribulation. Number three, the rebuilding of Jewish temple on Jerusalem's Temple Mount. Everyone's waiting for this to happen, right? This has to happen before the next step. Number four, the Antichrist rise during the tribulation. He'll enter the temple to proclaim Godhood, which is the indicator of why we need the temple to be rebuilt, because he can't go into the temple unless the temple's rebuilt. And a final war against Israel, which leads to Armageddon. So if we remember Jesus the first time he came to earth, we remember that the apostles misunderstood his purpose, right? They thought he was coming to bring a literal kingdom to overthrow the world and bring God and his kingdom there on earth. And they misunderstood that. And they're, they're even walking after the resurrection and they're walking along the road and Jesus is walking with them and they don't even recognize he's with them and he has to go through and teach them all the prophecy and show them and understand that they, and show them how to understand it. So what I wanted to do is kind of study these points out that a lot of uh, Christians are, 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 are uh, uh, saying is going to happen and make sure that we aren't falling for the same, uh, falling for the same misconceptions, right? We don't want to have the same issues that they had. So let's study these out. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, it's impossible to understand the name of Israel without first looking at the Old Testament, of course. The first time we hear the word Israel is when Jacob spends the night fighting and grappling and not letting go of a holy stranger until the end when the holy stranger says, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. You have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. Now this is to symbolize his victory over sin. He's uh, used prayer and claiming God's grace and he would not let go and you know he was given that name. Now, we know that Jacob, of course, had 12 sons, and those multiplied into 12 tribes, and eventually those 12 tribes ended up enslaved in Egypt. Now, it was at that point that God through, uh, told the Pharaoh through Moses that Israel is my son, even my firstborn, let my son go. And that's in Exodus 22 and 23. So here we see Israel started as a name that was for one man, and it expanded to all his descendants, right? So now that's a critical piece that we need to keep in mind, and we're going to go into that. Now, uh, about 800 B.C., before, before uh, Christ, or, yeah, yeah, 800 B.C., uh, Lord, the Lord spoke through Hosea, the prophet, right? And he said in Hosea 11.1, 1, 
When Israel was my child, then I loved him and called my son out of Egypt. Now, Hosea here is referring to uh, the Exodus, uh, Israel coming out of Egypt. But up until now, Israel has pretty much failed to live up to its name. It's not doing the things that it's supposed to be doing. So this verse particularly explodes with importance when we look into the New Testament. About 800 years later, we see that Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the times of Herod the king, Matthew 2.1. And because Herod threatened, he sent soldiers who put to death all the male children that were in Bethlehem. Now Joseph, of course, he was warned in advance that this was going to happen. So an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt and stay there until I bring you word. Now Matthew writes that that child remained in, in Egypt until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. So you see, Matthew's actually quoting Hosea at this point, right? What it originally meant was Egypt coming out of, uh, or Israel coming out of Egypt, and now it's referring to Jesus coming out of Egypt. It's actually more fully fulfilled in Christ. So it's important that we don't miss this point that uh, prophecy can often have dual application, that we have both a literal meaning, that this is what's happened, but it's a spiritual meaning pointing forward to Christ. This is a great example of, of uh, the Old Testament being a concealed book and the New Testament being a revealing of the Old Testament. So we always have to study both, right? We have to study the New Testament to get the reveal, but we study the Old Testament to understand what was revealed. Uh, now, if as we study Matthew, we see that uh, Matthew reveals Christ actually uh, repeats the story of Israel point by point, except that Christ actually uh, overcame everything that Israel had failed to, to, to do, right? So let's look at some of these parallels. In the Old Testament, a man named Joseph has dreams and goes to Egypt to preserve his family. That's in Genesis 45. In the New Testament, another Joseph, which we just read, uh, we just read about, another Joseph also has dreams and goes to Egypt to preserve his family, which was Jesus. In the Old Testament, when young nation of Israel comes out of Egypt, God calls it my son in Exodus. In the New Testament, when Jesus comes out of Egypt, God says, out of Egypt I have called my son. That was in Matthew. We just went over that as well. In the Old Testament, Israel leaves Egypt through the Red Sea. Apostle Paul says they were baptized unto Moses in the sea. Corinthians 10.2 In the New Testament, Jesus is also baptized to fulfill all righteousness. And immediately afterward, God proclaims him, my beloved son. The Old Testament, after the Red Sea, Israelites spend 40 years in the wilderness, led by a pillar of fire, which was God's spirit. In the New Testament, immediately after baptism, Jesus is led up of the spirit into the wilderness for 40 days. In the Old Testament, at the end of the 40 years, Moses writes Deuteronomy. At the end of Jesus' 40 days, he resists Satan's temptations by quoting three scriptures, all from Deuteronomy. God calls Israel a vine that he brought out of Egypt in Psalm 80, 
And in the New Testament, John 15, Jesus later declares, I am the true vine. And for the last one, the name Israel first applied to one man, Jacob, representing his spiritual victory over sin. And Jesus Christ is the Israel who came out of Egypt. He is the one victorious man who overcame sin. Now, there are many more of these, of course. Uh, we could I could probably stay here all day just going over the parallels, but we'll just stick with that for now. Now remember, Israel was not only Jacob, but eventually became all of his descendants uh, to cover all his descendants. Now the same principle in the New Testament uh, is applied. Let's take a look. Lord, uh, The Lord told the ancient Israelites... In Exodus, you shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And in the New Testament, Paul uses the exact same words to describe the church. In 1 Peter 2.9, he says, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a peculiar people. So in Galatians 3, immediately after Paul tells, uh, tells that Jesus is the seed of Abraham, he's Abraham's seed, he tells the Gentiles... And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So we see here that anyone who accepts Christ is heirs to the promise. He, they are Abraham's seed. So we're seeing the same thing that happened in the Old Testament. It starts with one man and it expands to the descendants. And again in the New Testament, it starts with one man and it expands to everyone who accepts Christ. So... Have you ever been hit so hard in the head that you start seeing double? Sometimes I think that Christians, uh, modern Christians, mainstream Christians may, may need a loving bonk on the head to start seeing double because it seems as though a lot of times we're missing some of the uh, this uh, representation of spiritual Israel in the New Testament. Romans 9, 6 and 8 says, They are not all Israel which are of Israel. That is, which they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. So we just saw who counts as the promise and who counts as the seed. And it's saying here that the flesh means nothing. Those, If you were born as a Jew, you're, you don't get counted unless you accept Christ. So we've had two Israels. We're starting to see that there's two different kinds of Jews, the flesh and the spiritual. And so in Romans 2, now this is a long one, so indeed you are all called a Jew. Romans 2, 17, 25, 26, 28, and 29. Indeed you are called a Jew and rest on the law and make your boast in God. For circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. But if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Therefore, if uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly. The circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, who is whose praise is not from men but from God. So it's critical that we understand this that someone called a Jew a physical descendant but's a lawbreaker of course is not a Jew. Their circumcision becomes uncircumcised. 
they their, their, their pass, so to speak, that they thought they had is revoked. But then we see the reverse is true, right? Circumcision becomes, or it's circumcision of the heart and it's acceptance of Jesus Christ that makes us a Jew, makes us an Israel. John the Baptist had laid the foundation of this by, um, by warning the people not to trust their ancestry. In Matthew 3, 8, Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance and do not think to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. So if God wants to, he'll raise up children to Abraham from stones if you don't fall in line. (laughs) You have to do the right things. Later, Jesus repeats this same principles with the religious leaders. In John 8, 39, he says, They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. And in verse 44, he later says, You are the father, you are of your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. So Paul also writes here in Galatians 3 7, Therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. In Philippians 3 3, For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit rejoice in Jesus Christ and have no confidence in the flesh. So it's very important that we start understanding this concept that to be an Israel, to be considered Israel, to be considered a Jew, that it is about accepting Christ to follow in his steps, to become righteous, to be, to follow the law. Now, if we remember there was a time where Jesus encountered a Gentile soldier. Remember this situation? There was, a, there was a certain amazement that Jesus had with this Gentile soldier in regards to his faith. In Matthew eight ten through 12, when Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel, And I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness, and there will be a weeping and gnashing of teeth. So when Jesus is sitting here talking to a group of Jews, he's just blowing them away. I mean, it's just unreal to think that a Gentile would sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that's not allowed. I mean, that's the same level. That's, you know, considered un- not allowed. It's unclean. You're not allowed to do that. Um, and he's saying that this Gentile had such great faith that he's going to be sitting down with them. And, you know, so this is showing that uh, it doesn't matter where your heritage was. It doesn't matter where, where the flesh was, right? And we see the same underlying theme when we look at the story of the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man is symbolic of Israel, and they have everything. But as we learned from uh, Tony's sermon last week, our purpose, what is our purpose uh, to go out and spread the gospel? Well, technically, the purpose there is for Israel's purpose, and we, accepting Christ, are Israel, right? So we have to go out and spread the gospel. Well, the Jews weren't doing that. Lazarus being the one that was... Uh, uh, groveling at the gates for crumbs of truth, he became uh, a part, he got to be in uh, Abraham's bosom. So 
Naturally, we have to, if we're talking about Israel and we see these different symbolic splits, this dual application, we have to also deal with the temple, right? Because the temple is one of the key pieces of the prophecy. So many of the mainstream Christian Zionists, they've written on the topic. There's been like 70 million books that have been published in 50 different languages. We see that the devil has potentially misdirected the focus from spiritual Israel into the uh, literal physical Israel, right? So now what we want to do is we want to look at the temple. We want to see if there's confusion in that respect. Most of the speculation that we've seen from the, the temple being something that needs to be rebuilt comes from a very vague reference in the New Testament. It's just one single place and it deals with the Antichrist. It's Second Thessalonians 2, 3, and 4. It says, Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. And this is the only verse that most people found all of that doctrine on, uh, because it mentions that the Antichrist will sit on the temple of God. So we must need the temple of God to be rebuilt, right? So now we know that the Romans destroyed that in 70 AD, so that's why it needs to be rebuilt. Now, just before King David passed away, he wanted to build a big temple. He wanted to rebuild it, a big permanent temple that would be better than any temple they've had. Now, Nathan the prophet, of course, he came to David and he told David, that he would not build this house for God, but Solomon would. In 1 Chronicles 17, 11, and 12, And it shall be when your days are fulfilled, when you must go to be with your fathers, that I will set up your seed after you, who will be of your sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build me a house, and I will establish his throne forever. So here is the clearest example of dual prophecy, because we see of prophecy with dual applications because history shows us Solomon was his son, of course, and that he built a temple. Um, but then we notice in the New Testament that it says Jesus was the son of David. And Jesus built a temple and a kingdom that would last forever. And it was founded in the spiritual aspect of his body and church. First Chronicles 28.6 Solomon, my son, he... Sh uh, oh. Sorry, later David said this, Solomon, my son, he shall build my house and my courts. So that's how uh, King David uh, interpreted that. John two nineteen and 21, Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. And verse 21 says, but he was speaking of the temple of his body. Jesus' prophecy, the Jewish nation, and destruction of the temple inspired some of the most intense rejection of his teachings. Here are some of the, the high points. Matthew twenty three thirty eight. Behold, your house is left to you desolate. Uh, Matthew 24, 1 and 2. And then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, Do you see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. 
don't know about you, but that sounds pretty permanent. Mark 14, 58, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. Mark 15, 38, then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So, even as Jesus hung on the cross, his mockers came and reminded him of what he had said, right? In Matthew 27:40, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. But that's not what Jesus is, uh, meant. They completely misunderstood what he had said. Who would destroy the, build, the temple and build it in three days? He was building his spiritual temple, his spiritual kingdom. And that's why he couldn't come down from the cross, right? Now, after the veil and, uh, after the veil had been torn and the early disciples had been excommunicated, uh, we find an unusual lack of interest in all of the new believers, even though that most of them are all Jews. They have a, a, a complete disinterest in the temple itself. And why is that? Well, because Jesus was making, made the new temple, which was symbolic of our, his, his body and the church. Jesus being the true Lamb of God, the temple was for animal sacrifices, which had now been replaced and now had been replaced with a spiritual temple and priesthood. So let's look at the biblical evidence of that. In 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. Ephesians 2, 19, 22. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you are also being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. And finally, in 1 Peter 2.5, you also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up a spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So we can see that that we are that temple, that each of us are these living stones that make up the temple. Unfortunately, even though God has provided all of this biblical evidence uh, that, that shows that everything shifted to spiritual meanings, uh, most Christians are waiting for the rebuild of the mosque of, of the temple that's sitting where the mosque of Omar sits. It's the Temple Mount. So there's no prophecy, there's no promise, there's no commandment that says that this is supposed to happen. Now, maybe it'll happen, we don't, we don't know, but again, like I pointed out earlier, when Jesus said that no stone will ever rest upon another, it seems pretty final to me. So in this case, this, this passage that they use uh, to found that doctrine off of, what does it mean? Second Thessalonians 2, 4, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. So it simply means this. If we are the temple, the church is the temple, then this Antichrist entity is seating himself above the church, right? He's seating himself in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. So this 
entity puts themselves above all others, that they put themselves equal to God above the whole church. And we see a lot of those things coming to fruition right now. Um, historically, Protestants, scholars, they all applied this message into uh, to the, the papal power, right? So we see that historically, but for some reason in modern Christianity, we've forgotten that. Um, if you want to look up some pretty interesting things, look at the uh, global initiative prayer by the Pope this month. It's pretty pretty interesting. But let's return now to the nation of Israel. So we've gone this far. We can say that only Jews will be saved and all Jews will be saved, right? Now you're starting to probably understand the concept of the literal is different from the spiritual. Um, and we know that people are saved based off of the new covenant, right? So let's notice the wording of the covenant. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And that's in Jeremiah 31, 31 in the Old Testament. And in the book of Hebrews, Paul reveals this concept. Again, we have the Old Testament concealed, New Testament revealed. So let's flip to Hebrews 8, 8, 10 through 12. Now notice, I flip my slide, Hebrews 8, 8, Jeremiah 31, Hebrews 8, 8, they're identical. There's no difference. So he's quoting exactly with what Jeremiah said. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord. We'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And then he goes on to say, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel for those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor, none of them his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, for I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. So the new covenant is made with Israel, right? In fact, God never makes a salvational covenant with any of the Gentiles. Nowhere in Scripture can we find a saving covenant made with Gentiles. If you want to be saved, you have to be born again uh, to become a spiritual Jew. Not by circumcision or sacrificing the lambs, but accepting Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, and circumcision of the heart. God doesn't have different methods of salvation for different people, whether Jews or non-Jews. Uh, everyone is under the same program, right? Grace through faith. Paul uses an analogy here in Romans eleven seventeen. And if some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches. But if you boast... Remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. Now, the Christian religion is based off of a Jewish manual called the Bible, which is what's surprising to me when occasionally I find Christians that are anti-Semitic. I've even run across uh, Christians in all faith, whether they're Seventh-day Adventist or not, but they're anti-Semitic in they have this uh, disagreement towards Israel, which I don't understand because Christianity is not a new religion. It's a completion of the Jewish faith, right? So we can better understand here what Paul meant in uh, Romans eleven twenty six when he said, and so all Israel shall be saved. Some, thinks, some people think that God means literal uh, Jews. Of course, this contradicts every 
principle that God has in dealings with humans throughout history and scripture. God, of course, is not a racist. And in Jesus' eyes, there is neither Jew nor Greek. So, oops. So, in closing, I want to talk about how this applies to prophecy. The greatest book of prophecy is Revelation. And of course, we see in Revelation, it talks about Mount Zion, Israel, Jerusalem, Temple, Euphrates, Babylon, Armageddon. So it's clear in Revelation that it's using a lot of the terminology out of the Middle East. But we see this dual application here through Scripture. Once we grasp the New Testament principles, we see that it's the wrong picture to use them in literal terms. With the correct understanding, we start understanding that uh, the, the 144,000 is not to mean literal Jews and that the new temple is not created earthly, but of spiritual things. So let's take the last five things and just go over them real quick. The rebirth of the state of Israel in 1948. Of course, the state of Israel did need to be rebirthed, but it was reborn with Christ, and it was moved to encapsulate all of uh, the true believers. So that one's incorrect. Uh, this one, the soon coming seven years of great tribulation, that's actually not in the Bible at all. There's some uh, reference to uh, three and a half years that uh, we actually know goes to a different prophecy. Um, number three, the rebuilding of the Jewish temple on Jeru uh, Jerusalem's Temple Mount. Well, as we just discovered, that one's incorrect as well because the temple itself is the church, the bodies, the living stones that make up the, the church and the body of Christ. Number four, the Antichrist rise during the tribulation. He'll enter the temple to proclaim Godhood. Now, this, of course, is happening as we speak. Now, at what pace it is happening, it's still happening. We don't know what pace it is. But a lot of mainstream Christians are waiting for number three, and number four is already happening. So they're missing the mark. They're starting the, the potential of being deceived, right? And this is where the end may come faster than what people expect. And number five, a final war against Israel, Armageddon. Now, this one's also going to happen. But remember, the final war isn't against Israel, literally Israel, but it's against us. It's against true Christians that accept Jesus Christ and uh, uh, have uh, accepted his grace through faith. So be prepared for the attack to come on our front, not in the Middle East. So in the end, I want to say, let us not live in the flesh or accept popular, convoluted teachings that focus on an earthly state. Rather, let us live in the Spirit. Like Jacob of old, let us wrestle in prayer and cling to Jesus until by faith we hear him say, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. Bow your heads for a closing prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this message. We thank you for the grace that you've bestowed on all of us. God, it's such a blessing to be the living stones that make up the temple that is your place of worship, that we can each become growing in, in God and to, to grow in Jesus Christ, to, to have a love for the truth, to be cleansed and to become a new man. God, we, we ask that you make this true every day in our lives. In Jesus Christ's name, amen.